scripture that I like to go to, and uh, it's one that I can't put as much weight on because it's actually one of just a couple of passages of scripture that in fact different manuscripts have different views on whether it's in fact original. Most scholars believe that the story, even if it was not in the original gospel that John wrote, believe that it's, it sounds and has the resonance of an authentic story of Jesus. And it may have been so authentic that it later got inserted because somebody just decided we can't lose this story. So I don't build a lot of doctrine off of it, but I think I'm safe in what I will bring to you this morning. But it is a very poignant story, and so I tend to find myself going back there. And as someone who a lot of folks consider liberal when it comes to text criticism, when it comes to translations, it's ironic, and I don't miss the humor, that I'm trying to hold on to it, not because I'm worried about whether it should be there, but because I love this story. Jesus shows us something in this story about his character, and I want to share that with you this morning. So we're told in verse number 1 of John chapter 8 that Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. So I want everybody to note, first of all, that the context and the setting in which this whole um, story occurs is the temple itself. Because of Jesus' notoriety and that, a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I want you to understand that this took some intentionality, because I promise you the act of adultery was not happening on temple grounds. So they're out looking for this. You don't typically commit adultery out in the public square. Thank you. There's a lady in the house that said, or by yourself. That's right. Where's the guy? Very good. You are a daughter of Newark, Jamie. You are spot on. That's exactly right. Yeah, there was two, but they brought the woman. So I want you to see the intentionality that they, they were laying a trap, and you're going to see a little bit later, that they were laying a trap for Jesus, but they weren't just laying a trap for Jesus. They had already laid a trap for this lady. I'm not saying that she didn't commit adultery. In fact, that's never contested. I'm not saying that she was not in the wrong. But these teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, when they brought this woman to the Temple Mount, having been caught in the act of adultery, this took some orchestration. And they put her in front of the crowd. They meant to shame her. They meant to embarrass her. And they meant to box Jesus in. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? You can even, without understanding all of the original context and Sitzimleben or the setting of the of the Jewish context and the Jewish law and all of those kinds of things, which is what that German word Sitzimleben means, all of the context and the backstory and the history. Even without that, you can tell they're up to something. It's a loaded question. Can I just pause here for a moment and tell you? You give God all the loaded questions you want. He's still smarter than you. (laughs) 
You go ahead and load them up however you want to. You will not stump my God. You may stump me. You may stump another pastor. You may stump the ministers in this church. You may stump your brother and sister, but you won't stump God. <laughs> what do you say? Moses said stoner. What do you say? Now, verse 6, John, whoever wrote the gospel of John, says they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. One of the things my dear father taught me for years and years is silence is not a bad thing. In fact, if you've ever, if you've been around here for a number of years, when he was pastor, he'd get so silent on you. He told me he did this to you too. Can I tell him now? He says, if you'll just be quiet. He said, most people, you'll get so quiet that they'll start second guessing whether they even ask the question. <laughs> they'll start wondering, did I just think it? Did I not say it? We, many times when we get asked these loaded questions, when we get put in situations, we start wondering whether, in fact, you know, we start panicking. You know how your heart rate goes and you, and you oh, God, oh, and you're, not God. What an odd time, Jesus, to doodle in the ground. Jesus just stoops down and writes in the dust with his finger. And they keep demanding an answer. I've never even pointed this out before, but it seems to me there's a really good possibility Jesus was trying to save them the embarrassment that was about to come. He was trying to say, this is none of your business. You, you shouldn't be interfering here. But no, they wouldn't take it. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, all right. There's another sermon there. When God says, all right, you better duck and run. All right, but I want to add one thing to your question. Moses says, Stoner, what do you say? But before we answer this loaded question, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he goes back to doodling. He stoops down and he wrote in the dust. Second thing my daddy always told me is the best answers are short answers. I don't typically give short answers. You ask me a question, you get a long dissertation, okay? That's, that's a typical thing out of me, all right? That's the teacher side of me, okay? But there are times that you will find, I have learned the lesson of my daddy, that a short answer is sufficient. I got in trouble one time. I won't go into any further details. But I answered somebody with a single sentence and it scandalized all kinds of people. One sentence. You can't answer with one sentence. Well, I did that day. I had nothing more to say. One sentence was all that was necessary. Jesus didn't need to say a whole lot. He said, we're just going to add to this scenario. 
before we talk about me and Moses, before we talk about my decisions and Moses' decisions, first, since you all want to get into the spot of the judgment seat, let's put you in your proper place first. I need the volunteers, those who've never sinned. You pick up and throw the first stone. Now, we're meant narratively to read this and start chuckling. We know the answer. We know none of them were without sin. We know Jesus is the only one who is without sin. We know that they had sinned and he had not. We, we, we get the picture. At this point, it ceased to be tense and we're suddenly chuckling. Here goes Jesus again. Here goes that smart God in the flesh again. Here he goes. He's done boxed them in again. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, ironically, beginning with the oldest. And the picture of this is very funny because the oldest ones were the quickest to catch the point. The younger ones were probably still like, and then suddenly they're like, wait a minute, where's, where's, where's Rabbi Nicodemus? Where's, where's Rabbi Gamaliel? They've done slipped off. They haven't even told the young ones what they're doing. They're just, they're out. And one by one, from the eldest to the youngest, they're gone. This is another side note, but please understand, church, there are times in leadership that before you minister to somebody, you need to get rid of the crowd. And when it's time to get rid of the crowd, you might not be very nice to the crowd. Because it's not about the crowd. This story, from Jesus' perspective, was never about the religious leaders. It was never about the Pharisees. It's about this woman. So one by one, they slip away, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, here's another thing that's funny. The crowd hasn't left, just the accusers. They've watched their religious leaders one by one slip away. And I even wonder if by slipping away, they were still there. They just receded. They went and hid in some spots where they could hear what was going to happen, but they no longer were in the driver's seat. Then Jesus stood up again, and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? I seem to have a lack of evidence. I seem to have a lack of testimony. In court of law, there's no witnesses. Where's your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Oh, there's so much in this story. You see why I have to keep coming back to it? It's just, it's very rich. You start pointing your finger at your neighbor, you better get ready because God will point his long finger at you. My daddy and mommy... They taught me to preach the gospel with fear and show no favor. But they would also, when I would go too far with it, they'd look at me and go, son, don't get up on that seat. It'll come back around and bite you. 
It's one thing to preach and teach truth. It's another thing to climb on the seat of judgment. Do not get on the seat of judgment. Didn't even one of them condemn you? For the first time, the woman speaks. For the first time, the woman has a chance to speak. No, Lord, she said. And everybody needs to understand that no, Lord, means no, not even one of them condemned me. So Jesus said, neither do I. Neither do I. And many times, we believe this is the gospel. God came to this world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And while that is true, it is not the complete gospel. The gospel is not just the love and the mercy and the kindness of our God. It is not just about his forgiveness and his acceptance. It's not just about that he defends the broken and he receives those who have fallen short of his glorious standard. No, the gospel is both. I don't condemn you. Now, here's where I like to get a little fun. I like to get creative. I wonder what Jesus' face looked like when he said the second part. I wonder if his eye twinkled a little bit. I wonder if he smiled. I wonder if he frowned. I wonder if he got severe. I don't know because the type of correction that each of us need varies from person to person. Some of us need intense correction. Some of us need gentle correction. One of the mistakes that I've had to apologize to my children on is that I have had to learn that my girls didn't need the same correction that my boys did. My boys are thick-headed. All three of them. They got different personalities, but they're thick-headed. And they are bullheaded. And the older they get, the smarter they think they are. So to make the boys do what they need to do, I just get intense, man. And I know how to get intense. But then I found out that my youngest boy, when I did that, I literally froze him like a deer in the headlights. I wasn't getting anything out of him. And I was freaking his socks off. Caleb, he's so smart, he's stupid. He'll just come straight back at me. And I know it very well because it's me. So Caleb and I, we just, we'll just go at it and slug it out. And of course, by the time it's done, he's crying because I'm better at it than he is. So, he, you know. Vincent, no, Vincent doesn't cry. Vincent's his mother. Vincent just ignores me. Which ticks me off even more, and then I come after him more, and he still just ignores me. He just says, okay. In fact, his brothers and sisters have picked up on it, and they give him a hard time about it. Vince, okay. Wimp. Duck and dad. Mark, I've learned I got to talk to with a... I can speak intensely, but then I got to give him lots of time to respond to me. But I, I found out 
And I've had to apologize to my oldest girl because I thought I had to deal with her because she is like Caleb and like me, except that something about the female part messed things up. It's like not identical. And so that intensity and that coming in hard, I've hurt her before. Because she's Candace. Even though she and Caleb share a lot in common, she's still Candace. She's not Caleb. She's not Marcus. She's not Vincent. And Cassandra, I can't get a word in edgewise, so I'm like buried. <laughs> There's usually tears, much tears, much feeling and emotion, very little logic at least being expressed. It's there, but just not getting expressed. She's her mother, so I do have a little bit of an edge there because I live with her mother, and I will for the rest of my life, God willing. My point in this, beyond just joshing my kids a little bit, is each of us is different. And the voice of correction is going to be different. So I wonder what the voice of Jesus speaking to this woman was because the gospel is not just about acceptance. It is also about correction. You cannot have the gospel affect and save you unless you have both the acceptance of Almighty God, the forgiveness, the love, the mercy, and the voice of correction. Our society and our generations don't like to be corrected. Can I get an amen from some people that are willing to be honest? The moment we're told we've done something wrong, walls go up, and they're a lot higher than this wall. We get back behind our barriers, and we start defending, and we start arguing, and we start explaining, and we start doing all kinds of stuff, and we are in the war. Can I get an amen? amen. But the gospel only works if there's both. Neither do I condemn thee. And. Now, girl, you better boot that guy out. You better stop going to that place. You better stop those actions. You need to clean it up. I love you. I've come to die for you. It's not going to be long and I'm going to hang on a cross to pay for your infidelity. I'm going to own it. I'm going to take the violation and I'm going to put it in my own body. That's how much I love you. That's how much I accept you. But you need to stop sinning. You need to go and sin no more. Somebody here this morning needs to hear that God does love you, but he's still going to correct you. God does accept you, but he's still going to discipline you. God does have mercy upon you, and he does give you forgiveness, but you must receive with it direction, and that direction is going to send you down a path you don't want to go. This is the gospel. Now, unless you think I just made it up out of John chapter 8, let me take you to one other passage and show you that this is consistent. John chapter 5. We're told in verse 1 that Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. 
Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on these porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? You know, sometimes the questions Jesus asks us are, they're like no-brainers. They're almost, they're almost rude. You know, when I'm fretting about whether he's faithful and he just simply says, do you believe me? Well, what are you supposed to tell the God of the universe? No, I don't believe you. What kind of response is he going to have? Well, you're dumb. Read the book of Job. That's exactly what happened. Job's trying to believe, but at the same time, he's having trouble, and he takes God to task, and God turns around and unleashes a barrage, a tirade, verse after verse after verse. By the time it's done, Job is just flat as a pancake. Do you want to get well? No, I love this porch. I mean, come on, really, seriously. Come on, Jesus. What kind of question is that? And I know preachers have mined that for all kinds of deeper meanings. I don't know if the deeper meanings are there or not. It is interesting the man does not respond with what I would call faith, and yet we're going to see that he gets healed. He says, I can't, sir. I tease my wife. She's a bit of a pessimist. At least I think so. So anytime I ask her to help me with something, she always tries to immediately begin to lower the expectations. I'll try. I don't know if it'll work. Maybe. Drives me batty. I'm like, why don't you try first and then say it? Of course, the problem is, is my mother and my father both made me that it might be duct tape and bailing wire, but bless God, whatever I set my hand to, it going to happen. I'll make it happen. It might not be pretty. It, it, it might be messed up. There might be blood all over the place, but we're going to make it happen. Well, he starts, I can't. And I love it because I do know that he's going to get healed despite his lack of what I would call faith. He says, I can't, sir. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always gets there ahead of me. I'm just a loser. And maybe you're here today. And you hear about this gospel. You hear about this Jesus who loves you. You hear about his love and his mercy and his kindness and his forgiveness. And you think, yeah, but not me. <laughs> you don't know all the stuff I've done. You don't know what a scoundrel I am. You don't know how many times that I've heard this gospel preached and I've failed still. Jesus' actions are not defined by our Struggle. This man's struggling with right attitude. This man is struggling with perspective. This man is struggling because 38 years of illness has twisted him. 
There's been studies done now that we understand that 38 years of illness, 38 years of illness that most likely came with pain, it changes how your brain operates. Jesus understood all of that. Just like he understood with the woman who was in adultery, he understood what happened in the background. He understood that there may have been abuse that occurred in the past. Oh, you don't think that happened in the ancient times? I promise you it did. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing new under the sun. The broken world we live in now was a broken world then. Those religious leaders, they didn't see that woman's past. They didn't see what her mother and her father had done to her. They didn't see what an uncle or an aunt had done to her. They didn't see what the, somebody in the town had done to her. They didn't see all of the things that led up to still her wrong action, still the command, go and sin no more. But also, Jesus always sees your backstory. I don't see it, and you don't see it, but Jesus does. He knows this man's backstory. He knows what this man has faced. And Jesus says, verse number eight, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Despite his lack of faith, despite his pessimism, despite his past, despite his answer to Jesus, Jesus' command to stand up and pick up his mat and walk, instantly the man was healed, and he rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. So here's an example of mercy and grace in the element of healing, suddenly transforming a man's life, suddenly giving him another way of living, another way of living. 38 years. Think about that. 38 years. But John chapter 5 and verse 14 makes my point. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well. So stop sinning. Stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Jesus wasn't threatening him. Jesus was correcting him. Jesus wasn't trying to coerce him. Jesus was directing him. And so this morning I come to you with a very, very simple thought that this gospel this gospel is not just about love and mercy this gospel is not just about forgiveness. No, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to understand that this gospel is also about correction. It's about direction. If you'll put my title slide up, A.V. This gospel is not just that which lets you know that he loves you. This gospel is also about that he has direction for your life. This gospel doesn't work with just love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. This gospel is about those things. When you go down in the waters of baptism and you've repented of your sins, your sins are forgiven. They are removed from your books. You no longer are responsible for them. When you lift your hands in praise and when you give him glory and honor and he fills you with his spirit and you speak in a language you do not understand, this is the seal of approval, the gospel tells us. This is God's loving you and sealing you and setting you aside. But you and I have to understand that right alongside that love and that mercy and that kindness and that forgiveness, that is built upon the foundation of an expectation of correction. And the discipline and the correction and the direction that he will give you is done in an environment of acceptance. My generation, hear me. You cannot a la carte the gospel. It comes with both love 
and discipline. It comes with both mercy and correction. It comes with both forgiveness and direction. You reject one, you reject the other. You got to take both. Regina, if you'd come, I'm closing. Past generations perhaps have preached this gospel with a heavy emphasis upon stop sinning and maybe God will save you. Today I'm telling you that's out of balance the other way. If I can take Jesus' example in both of our passages, he led with the kindness. He led with the mercy. He led with the acceptance. Neither do I condemn you. Pick up your mat and walk. I'll heal you. But then whether in the moment, as it was with the woman, go and sin no more, or whether it was later, he circles back around and he says, and by the way, you're going to have to stop sinning. Every single time that I've come to an altar of repentance, I have found a God who's met me there and said, I love you, Steve. But I've also found a God who says to me, you got to stop sinning. His love and his mercy means that as many times as I come in repentance, he's willing to meet me there. But every time, the message that comes right alongside of mercy is correction. You see, I didn't put it in our text today, but many of you know it from Hebrews. Whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. I understand that we have come up dysfunctionally. I understand that many of us have either come up with families who bought Dr. Spock and said, oh, they're good people, just talk to them. I know some of you look at me like something's wrong with me, but a two-year-old is not good. Never has been. They're nasty little critters. They want what they want, and they're smart enough to know when it's not for their good. Come on now. Oh, just talk gently to them. Two-year-olds don't listen to that. They don't. I've had five of them. So we've either come up with a permissive society. Everything is affirming. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets a ribbon. We need to be affirmed. I need to feel safe. I need to feel okay. I'm okay. And there's an absence of any correction. Or we've come up in which there's nothing but abuse. There's nothing but rejection. There's nothing but harsh words. There's nothing but punishment. And you either wilted under that abuse or you said, if I can get out of this, I will never go back to it. No one will ever speak to me that way. No one will ever treat me that way. No one will ever abuse me that way. From my heart, I speak to my generation and say, whether you grew up permissive 
and feel you have a right to be affirmed or whether you grew up being abused and you stood up with some strength that you found in the depths of your heart and said, never again will somebody speak to me in that way. Never again will they lay their hands on me that way. All of us have got to hear that this gospel is both love and correction. It is both mercy and discipline. It is both forgiveness and direction. Because whom he loves, he corrects. We can't make heaven our home. We can't escape our broken state without his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness. But love and mercy and forgiveness will leave you stuck unless right alongside of it comes correction and discipline and direction. And so whether you respond to the discipline of the Lord, whether you respond to the correction of the Lord, whether you respond to his direction, because you never experienced that, and that's offensive to you. My parents never talked to me that way. My teachers never talked to me that way. How dare God talk to me that way? You're supposed to be a loving God. What kind of God are you? Or whether as many of you as we learned this past trimester about God as our Father, your response was one of, oh, I know what a father is, and it ain't a good thing. I'm here this morning to call to you, to tell you that this gospel is a perfectly balanced mixture of love and discipline, of mercy and correction of forgiveness and direction. Neither do I condemn you, but you got to stop sinning. Pick up your mat and walk. I'll heal you. But make sure you stop sinning. Somebody here today, I've got to trust because of the Lord's direction to me. Somebody here needs to hear that he loves you. But right alongside that he loves you, You've got to not make the mistake that because he loves you, he's going to correct you. Somebody here needs to hear that he is merciful. He is so long-suffering. His mercies are new every single day. But because he's merciful, he's also going to discipline you. Not punishing you. No disciplining you so that his mercy leads to change and salvation. Somebody needs to hear here today that my God is able and willing to forgive you of all of your sins. There is absolutely nothing you have done that he cannot forgive. But with that forgiveness is going to come direction, a change of path, a change of direction, a change of action. You can't reject the one and keep the other. Would you stand? This altar's open.